Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Bellevue, Washington. He studied martial arts most of his life and currently holds black belts in judo and BJJ. He has won medals in the IGF Grand Prix, IGF Grand Slam, World Masters, Pan American Championships, Pan American Games, and a silver medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. He primarily teaches out of the Fuji Gym in Wakefield, Mass., and also teaches at the Henzo Gracie Fort Lee in New Jersey. He's married, has a 22-month-old daughter, and another on the way in just a few days. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Travis Stevens. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Good. I appreciate you taking the time and kind of how we do things with all my guests. I want to jump back and go back to the very beginning. I know you started at a young age, but I'm just kind of curious what led to that. Was there, was it interest from you? Was there a spark that kind of said, Hey, I want to do this? Or was it more of your parents' choice? Kind of what began your martial arts journey? Complete accident. Really? Yep. We were, I was on my way to a local youth center to sign up for sports Signed up for the wrong sport, got stuck with judo for the season, and fell in love with it. Really? Yep. <laughs> I did not know. What were you What were you meaning to sign up for? Football. <laughs> wow, that's actually kind of funny. So then what was it about it? You, you ended up doing it. What was it about it that made you fall in love? What made you want to keep doing it? Uh, I think it was the competitive nature of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's always on you to to make things happen. You don't require other people. It's kind of you versus the world. Anything about that first instructor that stands out? Kind of, what do you remember about that instructor? He scared the shit out of me. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. He yelled at me first first class. Really? Actually, it was even before that because we were required to show up to watch a class uh-huh. before we took our first class. I remember some kid was messing up in line and he made the kids sit right next to him. He counted out 200 push-ups while he sat on the bench and the kid was crying. Wow. And you wanted to keep going after that. Yeah. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. That's great. And even at that young age, you were into the competition side of it. That's kind of cool. Yep. And how long did you stay with that instructor in that school? Uh, All the way through my career for the most part. I mean, we're still in contact today. Really? What age now? I know everyone I've talked to with judo, it kind of, it kind of varies and stuff. So what age did the competition actually start for you? When I started competing? Yeah. Uh, two weeks after I took my first class, so I was seven. Two weeks after you did your first tournament? Yep. What do you remember about that? What was that like? Uh, I loved every minute of it. I ended up winning a silver medal, and I threw everybody except for the kid in the finals, and I cried because I lost, and I was upset, and then wanted to keep going. So two weeks, roughly how many classes did you have before that tournament? Uh, four. <laughs> wow. So what, I mean, what do you credit to that? I mean, that's, that's obviously not, not the norm for someone with only four lessons under their belt. What do you think it was? I just, you know, I'm built a little different. I just have a, a competitive nature about me. Okay. 
that not everybody else has. So regardless of whether I, I know something or not, like I'm always processing the information to try to figure out as quick as I can to get as good as I can. Okay. At that, you know, that age. Now, was this something that you were, was it year round or was it like a school type program? So year round. Year round. Okay. So roughly how many tournaments did you do your first year? Probably. Do you remember? Probably 20. Oh, okay. There was that many back then. Okay. That's kind of cool. Yeah. We competed just about every other weekend, give or take. Okay. And what's the furthest you traveled? Do you remember traveling for a tournament that young? In my, in my first year, it would have been Seattle to Boise probably would have been the longest. So five or six hours. Depending on traffic. And then how were your parents? Were your parents into this and pretty supportive or did they come watch you? Uh, My mother and my grandparents were super supportive. Okay. They made sure I had whatever I needed and got wherever I needed to go. Nice. You stayed there the whole time, all through your career. Did you try any other sports at all? Did you ever try to go back and do football or was it pretty much all in for judo? Never never played football. played t-ball for a little bit, um, a little bit of baseball. I kind of stopped playing when... The kids could start pitching themselves. That got a little scary and a little hairy. Didn't really trust it. Yeah. You know, the idea of standing there and letting somebody hurl a ball at me and I can't do anything about it, you know, it doesn't mentally sit right with me. Yeah, I get that. That's probably about the same age I quit <laughs> T-ball too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I played remember that. soccer, played tennis. Oh, nice. Uh, tennis. Very cool. Competitive chess for a little bit. Really? Yep. That's actually really cool. Did a little bit of rollerblading, okay. um, a little bit of skateboarding. That's about it. What kind of skateboard did you have? Do you remember? I mean, we changed brands all the time from Element to Spitfire. You know, it it varied. I had a, a Sims Full Buzz. That was my, my ramp board I had when I was in like 8th, ninth, 10th grade. I had it all through high school. I actually kicked myself to this day because about 10 years ago, I saw them going really high on eBay. So I just, oh, what the heck, I'll make some money. And I sold it. I, mean, I paid 20 bucks for that board back in 88. And I sold it, <laughs> ten, sold it 10 years ago on eBay for almost 200 bucks. And I still wish I would have held on to it. <laughs> so, yeah. Those other sports you did, those other activities, do you think any of them helped you with judo or vice versa? Did your judo training help you with any of those other activities? Um, yeah. You know, I'm a firm believer in kids should play all sports all the time, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're young, it's not really about becoming a specialist. It's about becoming a better athlete right? and just body awareness, skill development, motor skill development, strategic thinking, you know, working in teams, all of that plays such a vital role as you start to grow up. I know you mentioned tennis and that's, I have kind of a bum knee most of my life, but when I was training for my black belt, I played tennis probably five to six hours a week with a buddy of mine. And that was the strongest my legs had ever been in my life probably <laughs> yep that's how i cut weight for the 2008 olympics really? grabbed a tennis racket and a ball and that was our workout didn't run didn't do anything else just play tennis God, i'm learning a lot this is that's actually really fun i love it no that's one thing i wish that we didn't have tennis for boys in my hometown otherwise i probably would have played in high school you know, i did martial arts and stuff too but you know all we had was girls tennis so i didn't you know i didn't get to play it but i miss it i still love playing it when i can so <laughs> So what, uh, what age did teaching become something was at what age, what belt did you first teach or assist teaching in a class? You know, I think because I'm a martial artist, you know, we start teaching almost instantaneously. Once you start to identify like a style or a way of competing or a way of training, mm-hmm. there's such a collaborative effort that goes into it that you start working with your 
training partners, your coaches, having discussions, planning, theorizing. So it starts off really, really young, you know, where even if you're young and there's somebody who's technically an instructor, Mm -hmm. you might do something really well. And the instructor is asking you for information as to like why you're doing something the way you're doing it so that they can start to break it down and process it and add it to probably their teaching or just their database of information. Nice. That's a good way to look at it. I know one thing with me, when I started helping assist and teach, I I learned better myself. I think my martial arts improved so immensely after helping other people learn how to do it. Yeah. We force all of our kids, um, especially the competitive ones to teach. Nice. It really makes them think about what it is they do, why they do it and how to convey that to other people. So it gives them a better understanding of what they're truly doing. That's good. I mean, that's really smart. I know. I tell this story a few times on the show, but my, my instructor, my Taekwondo instructor, um, had asked me if I'd ever be interested in teaching a class. I said, yeah, yeah, someday that'd be fun, sir. And he's like, well, be here Tuesday night. And I showed up Tuesday night and I walk in and there's, you know, like five, six students out there that are all higher ranked than me. And, and he informs me, he goes, he goes, you're teaching tonight. And he goes, Mr. Brian's in charge. And he left. I'm like, what? <laughs> he basically threw me in into the fire and like, you're teaching a class of everyone who's higher ranked than you. And he's like, before he walked to the door, he's like, if they don't listen, give them pushups. And he left. Like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure if I'd quite do that the same, but it worked. I mean, I got really good at it. So that was good. But it's, it's nice that you have them, you know, require them to do it because it, it's, I think a lot of people don't realize how important it is. And, you know, maybe they'll try it and they won't enjoy it and you won't make them continue to do it for a long time. But at least having them try it and, and attempt to be a, you know, some kind of a teacher or mentor is really important, I think. Yeah, it's just such a, regardless of their competitive desire, because mm-hmm. not everybody is going to make it, mm-hmm. but it just plays such a vital role in you know their just life skills, being able to manage a classroom, read a room, build relationships with people you may not like, you know, understand the relationships between parents, the club that they're in, the students, you know, start to understand the dynamics and culture of different rooms at different times, start to read who likes who, how to deal with it, how to handle it, problem solve, critical thinking, all of it. You know, they become life skills that they're going to learn and take on whether they continue martial arts or not. That's a good way to put that. So now thinking back to then, to maybe the first time you taught someone something, or maybe it was the first time you assisted with a class, to now where you're still teaching and running a gym, what do you think has changed the most about your teaching style over those years? You know, I guess when I was a, when I was a full-time athlete and I did it professionally, mm-hmm. it was everything had to be done a very specific way. And I never truly opened up my mind to having other avenues for people. And then once you take on like a professional coaching role, it's so important that you learn to adapt and read and understand athletes, their talents, their weaknesses, their development path, so that you can teach the particular person or collectively a room techniques that fit their development and, you know, their their skill set. I remember one of the best teaching techniques I ever heard, I heard from a dog trainer. Really? And he was like, when he trains a dog, he's like, you know, I never ask a dog to do anything unless I think he's willing to do it. And it kind of hit the nail on the head that when I work with teenagers and kids, you know, if I know just by looking at them and their mannerisms and their energy levels that they're not going to do a task, Mm -hmm. 
I never ask them to do it. So you kind of in, I, individualize it a little bit. Yeah, because I know I'm just going to be in for a fight. The kid's not going to enjoy the class. I'm not going to enjoy the class. And I have to learn how to adapt so that I can get the kid to do something positive that I need. It doesn't mean that they get to control the class. Mm-hmm. But I know if, you know, I I was overseas one time with an athlete and I could tell just looking at him, you know, he was supposed to do... I think it was 14 rounds during the training session and he was on like 12 and I was like, you know what? You're done. You're done. You don't have it in you. And he got his ego all butthurt. And I was like, I'm telling you, you're done. You got to sit. And he was like, no. And he ran off into like the sea of athletes and he found a guy to work out with. And sure enough, guy threw him, boom, right on the back of his head. He was out the rest of the week. Dang. Cause you just, you learn to like, see it for themselves to a protect them but also push them because you can tell when an athlete is complaining or crying or getting upset Mm -hmm. but their energy output is still high yes you know we used to take our athletes all the time to a track and we used to make them run a 400 a 400 meter sprint and you'd ask them how tired they were by the third one but then when you show them the time the time doesn't change so their energy output is still up there, even though they feel crappy. Nice. So they have to understand that it's my job to recognize when the energy output's not there, regardless of their verbal or physical appearance. How long? Do you and that think- was something that I'd never really picked up on as an athlete. Okay, I was going to say, how long do you think it took you to to realize you could see that in other people? And I think it just kind of slowly built up where. You know, you tend to get frustrated and my, my nature is to always win. So if I can't get an athlete to do something and I'm realizing that they're not doing it, then obviously like we're not communicating on the same wavelength. So if I want to win, I need the athlete to do something. I have to make an adjustment to my delivery skill and what I'm giving that athlete to try to get them to perform in the way I need in order for them to be successful. As I started coaching and getting kids into competitions and in the dojo, like it's kind of a skill that you learn just mm-hmm. by the process of trying to improve as a coach. Question I've asked a lot of coaches, and it's probably about 80% one way, 20% the other, but for you personally, was it more nerve wracking competing yourself or watching your students compete? I don't really get nervous either way. Really? Okay. Yeah. If they win or lose, that's on them. Okay. When I was an athlete, I I ultimately felt like I did everything I needed to prepare. And I never judge my kids on their successes, whether they win or lose. I judge them on how they perform during the match. Because I always let them, you know, a lot of kids get praised for losing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids get yelled at for winning, especially around me. Because there's a right way to, to win and there's a right way to lose. And as long as they're doing the right things... I'll always be on their side. We always have a degree where our opponents can just, you know what, they can counter in the right way. They can step in the right direction and your day can be over in our sport in a split second. Yeah. So we always have to have that, that train of thought of, Hey, you did everything right, but you know what? They were just in the right place at the right time. And that happens because our system is predicated a lot on the statistics of the sport and probability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a degree in there of like, Hey, you know what? Shit hits the fan, man. Sorry. Yeah. But you did good. So just for, for my listeners, what would give an example? What would you mean by winning the wrong way? Uh, so I just had an athlete 
win a national title as an example. It just happened this past weekend. And he was all excited and I was just sitting in the chair shaking my head all pissed off. And we have a couple of rules when it comes to positioning, to grip fighting, to attacking. And there are certain places you're just not supposed to be in. There are certain things you're not supposed to do. And again, because he's in the United States and it's a junior and cadet level, which is very young, right? 15 to 20 years old. They don't have a lot of experience. So you tend to get away with a lot of things that you would never get away with on like a senior elite level. Because people understand strategy, people are critically thinking, people are problem solving in such a high level and such a fast pace that if you don't train those things into your system, you're gonna be you're gonna be two steps behind all of the time. Okay. And one of the things the kid did as an athlete was he circled and he put his back in the corner on the edge of a mat. And it's a rule that we have where you should never be there. Should be the inverse. You should be circling and putting their back on the edge of the mat so that you can pressure them into doing something wrong. Well, sure enough, the guy he was going with, when he put his back on the edge of the mat, his opponent just dropped into a very bad attack and he ended up choking the kid. But that doesn't mean that what he did wasn't wrong. Okay. And I always have to remind them of the positional awareness and the things that they're doing wrong to make sure that they're not creating bad habits for the future. Like I'm happy that they won, but I'm not happy in the way that they won. I would rather have an athlete lose by doing everything right than an athlete who did everything wrong and still have success. I like that. It's a great attitude. You know, it's like an athlete who cuts weight in all the wrong ways and still wins. Like no coach wants to deal with that because it reinforces the fact that he doesn't have to pay attention to his diet. He doesn't have to pay attention to his body weight in a weight cutting sport. I've only studied judo for a little bit when I was much younger. I'm not as into the sport as, as a lot of people. I've interviewed a lot of people have done it. What is compare the weight cutting in judo to like the weight cutting in MMA is I, I know how extreme it gets in MMA and I'm personally not a fan of the way it's done at a lot of the tournaments and stuff. How different is it in judo or is it more similar or how does that work? Everybody's a little different. Okay. Judo has done a lot over the years, especially since my last quad and now to try to alleviate the weight cutting issues that athletes have. So they're not as gruesome or as bad as they used to be. The UFC probably has some of the worst ones because the athletes don't compete that often. Mm-hmm. You know, at best case scenario, they do it three times a year. Yeah. As an athlete, I was doing it 12 to 14. Okay. So when I cut nine kilos in two days, but I do it 14 times a year, that's a lot different than an athlete who does it twice a year and cuts 20 or 30 pounds. Yeah. You know, but- Nowadays, athletes weigh in the day before, they have a 5% allowance the next day. So you can't just binge eat and you can't yo-yo your weight as much as you can in other sports. For judo, it's like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I wish, you know, I used to judge MMA and that's one thing me and a lot of the judges had a conversation. I wish they'd do same day weigh-ins for for MMA events. It's like, I never got the point where a fighter is going to fight at 155. They walk around at 185. They cut to 155. They weigh in the day before. And then by fight time, they're like 178. I'm like, then just fight at 170. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't get that. Yeah. They yeah, can they definitely use a rule change. <laughs> yeah. And the UFC allows IVs and like other things that we're not allowed as like an IOC based sport. So that's good. It's got a lot of benefits, you know, but nice. it's it's hard weight cutting because it's such a dangerous activity mm-hmm. 
it's very difficult to convince somebody that they shouldn't or should cut weight based on some arbitrary rule set of height, weight, you know, your BMI, like the amount of water you have in your system and what's healthy and what's unhealthy. You know, even through my Olympic career, I met with the nutritionist and the U.S. Olympic Committee tried to tell me that I couldn't compete in my weight class because it was too unhealthy for me to make weight. <laughs> and I was like, we're two years from the Olympics. I was like, you guys can shove it. <laughs> wow. So your gym, the gym you run now, and then the gym you trained at. So did, did both there were both of them, did they require competition? I know I've met some judo schools where they you have to compete. That's the only way to advance. How were the schools you've been through? Were they kind of the same or was it more optional? No, yeah. Most of our students don't compete. We have okay. about 300 members and 275 of them don't step on a competition mat. Okay. So it's more for health, more for self-defense, you know. And just more for motor skills and life skills than, you know, judo competition. That's cool. You know, our goal is to build champions in the community and in life, not on the mats. Very cool. Some kids just have that competitive desire to want to compete. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your black belt test. I've, you know, I've had uh, in the last few months, I've talked to about four different uh, judoka and just kind of, it's, it's always interests me hearing about what they had to go through for their judo test because the answers have been so different. So I'm just kind of curious, what was your black belt test like? Never had one. Never had one. Okay. So did you get yours based on competition then? So the way the, the judo promotion system works mm -hmm. is if you want it to be official, there's like a a piece of paper you have to fill out and it asks a ton of questions. And part of the questions are, you know, what is your competition record? Who have you beat? When did you beat them? What tournament did you go to on what date? How did you beat them? And then there's a section in there for your katas and you basically fill them out and you put the name of the person who was officially testing or grading you. Now, before I ever had my black belt and before I was even up for my black belt, I did all three levels of kata out of the six. I did the first three Okay. before I was even a brown belt. I had those boom in the bag. So I could have easily met the age and time requirement because of the katas to get my belt. Okay. I also had the competition experience. So when you fill out my paperwork, it basically goes to a promotion committee that is outside of your dojo. Wow. Right. This is a group that's been recognized by the national governing body to oversee the promotions. They take that slip of paper and they basically read it and they either approve or deny you. Jeez. And I got approved. Now, when I say that they don't know you, whether they know you or not, it's all based on the rules governed by the sport that allow it. And if you meet the requirements and then those people are just there to kind of Fact check's not the word I want to use, mm -hmm. but kind of fact check it. Mm -hmm. Like I put in for my sixth degree. It was 2017. But the time requirement from your fifth to your sixth, I think is like three years or something like that, like three and a half, four years. Mm -hmm. And I was at two, but I had just meddled at the Olympic Games. <laughs> and you're allowed to beat the timeline if you do something competitively or you give back to the sport in such a way that, you know, surpasses a competition record. Okay. So they take all these variables into account. And so when they put my name 
on the paper and the paperwork was filled out because I didn't fill it out. Somebody else did. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't have enough competition experience for them to justify my sixth degree because I won world masters and I silvered at the Olympics, but there weren't enough matches (laughs) over the time span that they looked at in order to justify giving me my sixth. Wow. That's crazy. But if I fought in another tournament on the world stage that year, right. And had an extra like seven matches, then it would have been okay. So there's there's these people that sit around and they like I don't want to say it's arbitrary, but mm-hmm. they they have this like group of people that approve and deny. Yeah. And that's different than, you know, your local club guy just gives you a belt. Right. So do you or you buy one off Amazon. Yeah, that's too. So does your school use that same organization or do you do it differently? Uh we do it locally in house. Nice. Uh, but we're allowed to because Jimmy and I are the instructors. <laughs> it makes sense. So whatever we say kind of kind of goes when it comes to getting people their first couple ranks. So nice. when those athletes fill out their paperwork and they attach our names to it, they get approved by the committee. That's cool. So at what age did the Olympics come on your radar? When did you start thinking, hey, I want to do this or maybe this is possible? When did that first come into your into your mind? When I came back to judo right at about 15 years old. 15, 16 years old. Came back to it. So did you take a break for a while? Yeah. I suffered a catastrophic knee injury when I was 11. Um, A guy shot my kneecap, shot a double and my kneecap, split my knee in half and my foot ended up on my hip. So I got put in a leg brace for six months and I spent two years on crutches trying to like learn how to walk, move around, like, you know, unstable, Mm -hmm. constantly like re-injuring it because I was an athlete and I was frustrated. So I was trying to come back and I'd be in crutches again. So I spent four years just basically doing nothing. So when I came back, I came back with the mindset of I'm going to the Olympics and I'm winning. And then from from that day, from 15, then how long, how long did it take you before you got uh, made your first Olympic team? Uh, I was 22. What was that uh, first Olympics like? What are some things that stand out, some of the, the, the big moments there? It really, it really showed me that experience is more valuable than talent. Okay. You can't win without luck on your side. Pretty much every... Every athlete, especially in the sport of judo, because, you know, it's done on like a knife's edge, like one wrong step and your entire Olympic dream could be over. Mm-hmm. So typically every every athlete who medals at some point during the day, they had some call at some point just like go their way. Okay. And when you look at it, it's like if you don't have those moments, then it's very, very difficult for you to win. And there are calls that like if you ask people in the crowd who are educated, you'd probably get a 50-50 response on which way it should have gone. Okay. So you couple a little bit of luck with some experience and you have a, a good chance at winning a medal. How'd you do in the first one? It was 2008, right? First yeah. Time? How'd you do it? I lost to the, the gold medalist by a penalty and I lost to the bronze medalist by a cocoa, which is the smallest score you could get. Okay. And was that uh, those two losses? Was that the motivation? Said I'm, I'll be back in four years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then how did it so I ended up ninth? I think at the end of the day. Like thinking back now, I mean, obviously then you were frustrated. You know, you could have done better, but ninth in the world isn't bad. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Right. Because it's not. It's not truly ninth in the world. It's more like nine hundredth in the world. 
because the Olympic Games only allows one per country for us. Okay. You know, we're not, you know, I, I, I hate these sports, but like track and field or mm-hmm. swimming where they just arbitrarily let countries just show up yeah. and dominate, you know, entire sports because they can't necessarily fill them with enough competitive countries. Do you see that ever changing for judo? No, because we're we're too big of a sport on a global scale. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the second most popular sport in the world next to soccer. Wow. On a global scale, I think there's something like 165 or 170 something countries represented at the Olympic Games for judo. Wow. And of that, we get something like 60, I think, on the podium. Wow. Like the diversity of the competitiveness in the world of judo mm-hmm. is just far greater than most other sports. So then how was uh, how was 2012 compared to 2008? 2012 was a complete disaster. Okay. And it really showed my my lack of experience, my uh my childish nature. Okay. I ended up losing in the semifinal to Ole Bischoff in a match where I felt and still feel to this day that I was cheated by the entire judo community and specifically the IJF and the powers that be. Okay. And I wasn't mature enough or mentally mentally strong enough to deal with it. You know, I was like a I was like a crying toddler that like went in the corner and just wanted to sulk and I didn't want to play anymore. So when I had to fight for bronze, I wasn't really like in it is probably the best way to put it. Okay, like not mentally. Yeah, mentally I was just checked out. Okay. Didn't care because I I wasn't there for bronze. I was I was there for a gold medal and I didn't feel like I had lost. I felt like it was taken from me. Dang. So I ended up after I lost and I finished fifth because I was too stupid to actually mentally get up for my bronze medal match and try to win it. Mm-hmm. I'd rather pout about it. So. I spent the next three weeks sulking in my room at the Olympic Village. Oh, man. So what got you out of that? What made you – two Olympics that didn't go the way you wanted to, what made you want to go back for a third? Um, I almost didn't. Really? Uh, I got suspended from the sport for like three months, I think, four months. Okay. Because I did some things I shouldn't have, and I threw some things at an event where I felt like I got cheated again. Okay. Went down a very dark path of anger and frustration and – then one day I just, I woke up and they told me I had to compete in Germany and I was in Austria by myself where I just lost to like a 17 year old kid because I was so pissed off. I was just not even thinking straight and I was sitting at a bar. I don't even drink, but I was sitting at a bar just like frustrated to no end and I sent an email to the coaching staff, I send an email to USA Judo, I send an email to just about everybody and I'm like, that's it, fucking done, fuck all of you, I'm out. <laughs> and then everyone panics because I'm calling it quits because I can't compete well, I can't fucking train, I can't do this, I can't do that, and I'm just upset, all because of London. And it went on for about a year until this time when I'm sitting at this bar that I think Jimmy had called me or the team manager had called me and they were like, hey, you don't have to go to practice. Don't do anything. Just show up in Germany and we'll talk about it in Germany. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck the rules. Fuck the IJF. I'm going to do judo the way I want to do judo. And if you guys penalize me or fuck me, fuck you too. Wow. 
I went into Germany with this mindset of, I don't even care what the rules are. I'm just going to kick the shit out of everyone, no matter how I do it, whether I break the rules or not, I'm here to fucking win. And you know what? If you guys kick me out of judo, then who cares? I was quitting anyways. And sure enough, I walked through the division and I win a gold medal. Wow. Because at some point I just... I had all this weight and all this pressure and all this frustration that was on me that I finally just cracked. And I just threw my hands up in the air and was like, I don't even care. Once I did that and I released all that frustration and anger to a point where it didn't matter to me anymore, I was able to get back into doing judo for judo and doing judo based on like its values and what it truly means to compete in the sport instead of well, they changed this rule, so you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really affect the positive judo that you should be doing. Okay. And did you decide right then and there that you were going for it again? I'm not so sure I ever... It was either I was quitting or going to the Olympics. It There was no... Nothing I was already care. pretty much qualified. I was like top five or something in the world at this point. Okay. Talk a little bit about 2016 then. What was that like and, and kind of what are some memories from that? 2016 was a a funny event for me because and again this is where that like the maturity and the experience really play a part because when you go to the Olympics and you're there for the first time you're like a kid in a candy store you know you get a shop like I remember was it Beijing yeah it must have been Beijing where you have to go through team processing and it's like, it's an amazing experience because you see all the other athletes. They give every athlete this shopping cart, right? Mm-hmm. And you go through this shopping cart and you go through these long lines and all you do is get all this free gear. You get size, you get measured, you know, you're trying things on, you're making sure this style fits because that style fits a little baggy. This one's an athletic fit. You're getting all these shoes, these hats, these washes, these sunglasses, And you're just overwhelmed from the process. And then you walk into the Olympic Village for the first time and you're just in awe. And you walk into the Olympic Stadium for the first time and you're like, wow, this is amazing. There's so many people here. But by the time I got to Rio, I got to the Olympic Village and I was like, this fucking blows. (laughs) Like all these fucking people, all these people taking pictures. Like, guys, I got better shit to do. Been here, done that. And it turned into just an everyday place. Like I got up one day and I went to work. It lost that allure or that thing that you were chasing. Because in the run up to 2016, it was never a question of was I going to qualify. I had been a top 10 player in the world throughout the entirety of the quad. Okay. It was more just like, do we get a seed? And if so, which one? It's the only thing we cared about. Mm-hmm. I was walking to the cafeteria and I was looking down this long road of all the Olympic flags and all the country flags. And I was just like, yeah, I could go home. And at that point I knew that like doing another quad was probably out of the question, but the event and the atmosphere to me was just like anything else I had already done. Cause I was, it was my third and I had already fought for a place in the final in 12, you know, being into the semis. So it made it very easy to perform once we got on the mat. Okay. And my preparation went 
completely haywire in 2015. It's a complete disaster. But in 2016, it really set the grounds for like, you guys can barely beat me at my worst. When I'm at my best, there's no way you're going to stand a chance in Rio. And I took that attitude all the way to the Olympic final. What happened in the final match? What was the, you know, what, what do you think could have maybe done done differently? Or did you, did you, do you think you gave it your best? And they just, like you said before, right place, right time. I think I, my planning for it and the methodology behind what I did was right. I think the only thing that I did wrong was I overextended myself and I created a repeatable pattern that I probably shouldn't have. Okay. But hats off on him for, you know, making those adjustments mid-match in an Olympic final. So uh, what was that uh, feeling like standing on that podium and, and getting that silver medal? Not great. I mean, silver is probably one of the worst ones you could probably have because you're the only dipshit on the podium with a loss at the end. Everybody else won a match and got on the podium. I'm standing there like I just lost. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, it's like at least the guy who won a bronze medal, like he won and he got a medal. I lost and got a medal. And it's like, man, I didn't even get to celebrate. <laughs> How about now? I mean, can you think now? Can you think back and celebrate or still no? No, because and I tell my athletes this all the time. No one cares. We inherently care at the time. And I understand it's important to you know, the younger generation and inspiring a generation. But for me, it's not about that particular moment in time when I did win. The question is, is what do I do now knowing that I have it to improve the lives of the people who are on their path today or choosing to go down that road today? Okay. Because living in the past for me has just never, never really been something I've ever done. So once I stepped off the podium and I, I had like, I would say like a day of like, wow, I, I did it. I fucking did it. I made the Olympic final and I won a silver medal. By day two, that was gone. It was over. Okay. And like, you think about it, right? And you know, you're at the Olympic village. No one, no one could actually look around and be like, oh, that guy's an Olympic gold medalist. He's just a guy who's an athlete. And you know he's an athlete because he's got a special badge on. Yep. But we're all just people. You know, some people are a little bit more famous than others because their sports get aired on TV. But right. other than that, like I was at 2008 and I couldn't tell you all the medalists. Okay. I couldn't give you the names of all the people who competed in my division because really? no one cares. Okay. And so I took it by like day two and day three of like, okay well, we've done this really amazing thing. How do we leverage this to improve everyone's situation for the future? And what can we build and what can we pass on to ensure that more people have this opportunity to do this? And it just keeps growing and growing and getting passed on. Nice. So now you, you started your school in, is it 2013, I believe, when you opened the school? Yeah, the jiu-jitsu school. Yep. What advice would you give someone who is thinking of getting involved in martial arts for the first time in their life so they know nothing about it? What are one or two tips you tell them that something really important they should look for in a school? Make sure they have a complete schedule first and foremost. So if you go to a school, right, that we'll use judo as an example, right? Because mm -hmm. most judo schools aren't professional, but you'll see that they have a beginner and an advanced class. That's not a professional school. I would probably go somewhere else okay. if it were me. 
if you notice that classes start at 6 p.m., that's not a professional school because that guy is probably working a day job and then getting to class by 6 p.m. And he's not thinking about your improvement or about the class curriculum or the structure. So I would look for a place that has a full-fledged curriculum, a full-fledged schedule. Even if you're not taking all of it, Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter. It just shows that the people who are in charge of the programming at the school are doing it professionally and they're putting people in place to teach you something that monitors your success. Nice. Those would be my, my big takeaways. Good. I'm just curious, are you a fan of MMA? And is that something you ever considered at all in your career? I mean, they tried to recruit me when I was younger. Okay. But I there's no money in MMA. Yeah. So back then, even less. <laughs> yeah, even today, it's just like why it's such a bad path for athletes. Mm-hmm. I struggle with it because it's such a gamble, such a gamble that there are better avenues and better things you could be doing with your skill set and your work ethic than, you know, chase fame and glory. Mm-hmm. But some people love it. Yeah. I yeah. wasn't that person. You know, it's more popular than boxing and boxers get paid so much more than MMA fighters. You know, like I remember I, I when they asked me, I think the the contract was like a hundred thousand a fight, win or lose, didn't matter. I was gonna get a hundred grand. Okay. And I was like, okay, but it'll take me two years to pick up my striking to a point where it can be competitive to win a title. Mm-hmm. Right? My jujitsu and my judo and my wrestling is good enough as is. But for two years I'm not going to make really anything because I can't risk the $100,000 in losing because then I'm not going to get the fights. Right. So you fight two times a year, you know, call it good. Make sure I don't get hurt. You're three years in at 200K. (laughs) You know, by the time you do 200K, I'm going to do the math here really quick, divided by three years, that's 66 grand (laughs) times 0.6 because you got to pay 30% in taxes. You're making $40,000 a year. And it's like, see, my school makes that. What am I doing? Yeah. Like, why would I? And I really struggled with, I did judo, not for the money, mm-hmm. but I had like a deep down like desire for it. When it comes to like winning a UFC title, like I could really care less. There's nothing internally for me that like gets joy or satisfaction. So without that, there has to be that monetary side to make sure you're doing what you're doing and there's a reward for it because you're not getting anything emotionally out of it. Right. Even when I would help like George St. Pierre and Rory and Chris Weidman and those guys, I was like, I mean, this is fun. Like Mm -hmm. it's a good hobby for me, Yeah. but not as a profession. Good way to look at it. All right. Who are three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Oh, and I've had people say as few as two names and as many as eight, but I usually say three, four, five martial arts. I feel bad because they can be all judo people. If you want, it's completely, that's why you feel bad, right? Because there's so many other martial arts with people that I'm sure have done a tremendous amount that, you know what? I'm just not involved in your sport. Sorry guys. (laughs) If I would have to say Kano. Nice. Definitely. Were you a Gene LaBelle fan? Nope. Oh, okay. He just hasn't, you know, there's a big difference between building your own name and then doing something for the sport. Right. And he, you know, when people build their name, 
when they're done building their name, whatever, whatever was there because of it tends to fall to the weight side because it didn't have that foundational. God, I'm having a brain fart right now. <laughs> Who was the guy that brought jujitsu to Brazil? I should Google it. I'm on my computer. Gracie? Hensel Gracie? No. No. Or, uh, I mean, Helio Gracie? Sorry. No. No, that's who who received it. Oh, yeah. Mitsuyo Meta? No, I don't think that's his name, though. Oh. So that, that's who Helio and Carlos were taught by, a traveling Japanese judoka. Maybe it was then. I would put that guy in there. Okay. I'd probably put Henzo in there. Okay. Um, I'd put Jimmy in there. Nice. And you know what? I'll throw Kayla Kayla's name in there. Nice. I think Jimmy did Jimmy gave her name too, I believe. So actually I think so did uh Jean Kanakogi. I think she said Kayla too. So it's a good answer. It's a good it's a good She's one that I'm on the fence with because she hasn't actually done anything yet. But I have a feeling she will, so I'll throw her in there. Okay. That's good. All right. In all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that rises to the top? You keep coming back to it. It's super important to you. Always be learning. Nice. I like that one. All right. I have a few fun questions to wrap it up. First one is, do you have a favorite martial arts book? Nope. Not at all? Nope. Is there one you recommend if your students say, hey, I want a good book on judo or jiu-jitsu? Is there one you recommend? No one's ever asked. Really? Okay. Yep. Fair enough. All right. And how about, uh, were you ever a gamer? Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Nope. Wow. These are going to go fast. <laughs> okay. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Nope. <laughs> no on that one too. All right. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Really drawing a blank. And the only thing that comes to my head is Jackie Chan. Okay. He's got a lot of good ones. Okay. And how about this one? This one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just any movie you've ever seen, a favorite movie fight scene. I don't really have one. Not a big movie person? or My eyes are just trained to see nothing but mistakes and inconsistencies <laughs> okay. from watching videos that the unrealisticness of it and the unlikelihood of it just makes it hard to watch for me. My other question was going to be, have you ever seen judo performed well on screen? I'm guessing the answer is no. <laughs> um, I mean... Yes and no. I mean, I've seen it performed well in a defensive, like self-defense scenario. Okay. But I'm not so sure I would equate that to judo training as much as just common sense. Okay. That makes sense. That's good. Fair enough. So before I let you go, anything maybe I forgot to ask you or we haven't discussed at all? I know we didn't really get to talk much about your jujitsu training. It went and went really just really quick on that. Just kind of went, when did you start that and what led you to, to start training in another style? Well, it was London Olympics. It was March and I ended up with a Liz Frank fracture in my foot. And I was like, well, I can't sit here and do nothing. So how about I go do jujitsu because I can sit on my ass at least. Okay. At least I'll get something out of it. And then so Jimmy called Henzo. Henzo said, send him to New York. So I went to New York. And for the next three and a half, four months, I did four days of training in jujitsu sitting on my butt and three days of therapy and strength and conditioning in Boston. Nice. And I just went back and forth. So I was living out of different hotels in New York. Mm -hmm for most of 2012. Okay. How's Henzo to train with? Uh, very technical, very heavy, uh, very basic. Okay. Like the simplest things you'd think don't work, but they do. Nice. Cool. Well, Travis, I just want to thank you. This has been a lot of fun. You're, you're, you're a good storyteller. I loved hearing uh, your, your thoughts on stuff and, 
and just kind of what, you know, what, what drove you and led you to your, to everything and, and nothing but continued success. And any last minute parting words before I let you go? Uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, I appreciate your time and, and I can't wait till the episode comes out. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.